five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. My guest this time is Chloe Carriera, a fellow space communicator who is, among other things, the host of the Galactic Chloe Show on YouTube. We talk about all things space communications. Just as a reminder, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform so more people can find the podcast. Thank you. Now, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Chloe. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. So today I'm here with Chloe Carrier from EPFL, the university in Switzerland. And Chloe is a space communicator, but she's going to tell us all about it. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm very happy we're having a Swiss guest again. I should really be having some more Swiss guests, given that I'm most of the time based in Switzerland. And I spend a lot of time at your university, EPFL, as well. But Chloe, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about what you're doing? Uh, yeah, so in a nutshell, I'm still a student at EPFL, doing management of technologies with a focus in space technologies. And I am the president of Space Such a Service, a nonprofit organization that aims at doing promotion of space. Okay, so let's let's talk about a few of these things you mentioned there. So you're a space and science communicator. How did that start? How did you decide that you want to become a, a space communicator? Oh, wow, what a story. Um, actually began when I was 15 and I uh, learned about space in general. I, I was not uh, the kind of person who was passionate about space since um, I was little. It came uh, way after that when I was a high school student. And I learned about this mission from the European Space Agency, this, the Planck mission, that aims at doing, you know, the first picture of the universe, so right after the Big Bang. When I learned about this, I really thought, wow, space is amazing. There is so much we don't know. I want to work in space. And then the next step was that I discovered that so many people don't know how fascinating it is. And uh, so I started being passionate about sharing this passion and not only passionate about space. How did you decide? So we'll, we'll talk about this, but right now you have basically a video show. I think, which is called um, the Galactic Chloe Show. Very cool name, by the way. And it's um, available, for example, on YouTube. How did you decide to to choose this format? And um, talk a little bit about how, you know, uh, the, the, the design of the show, how you decided to do, like, for example, a video format and um, how you're choosing your guests and the topics and so forth. So the show started about a year ago, and at first I was doing more uh, live presentations and uh, organizing events, um, but then, I mean, COVID happened, and I started thinking about how to go virtual, and I talked with the EPFL communication services, 
And uh, we wanted to develop a new format that would attract students, but also more people in the general public to get interested about science, but also the people who do science. And this is really something that we try to do at the Galactic Chloe Show is so basically we're doing 15 minutes video with one or a couple of guests uh, in the scientific field, uh, be it professors uh, or students. And we talk about what they do, but also why they do it. And uh, the setting is uh, what we call the EPFL Lunar Campus. So we imagine that we EPFL 50 years ago as the first man stepped on the moon came with NASA program and established the first campus um, on our satellite. And uh, we invite guests from Earth to come and visit us and tell us more about their research. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners who may not be aware, so EPFL is a, is a university in Lausanne in Switzerland, and it's basically one of two of the Swiss institutes of technology, the other one being in Zurich. And I think it's fair to say both of them are ranked among the top universities in the world, and Lausanne actually has a, uh, I think it's a space minor, right? Or what is the exact program? Yes, exactly. So we, we do not have a, a complete major or a master, but you can do your, your minor in space technologies. It's uh, co-organized by the PFL Space Center and the Space Innovation. Okay. And so it seems like this started sort of with, within EPFL, sort of uh, transitioning from from live events, as you said, to towards online events during COVID. But is it fair to say that now you're targeting a much broader audience than just the EPFL community? Totally, totally. At first, the show was more yes uh, for EPFL students, but now we're, we're trying to to reach out for for more people. And for instance, our latest episode was with uh, Professor Michel Mayer, who won the Nobel Prize of Physics in 2019 who was not an uh, EPFL alumni, and um, it was with the Cluny Collier, or Swiss astronauts. And this episode was much more directed toward, towards a broader audience. Okay, and in terms of talking about a broader audience, it's kind of interesting. I mean, here at the Space Business Podcast, it's also basically our objective to reach an audience that's not just the, let's call it the existing space community. And I always joke, like the existing space community is actually not very big. It's sort of like, you know, maybe a few thousand people and you meet them at all of the big conferences like IAC. But but really, um, you know, what we're trying to do, and it sounds like probably you're trying to do as well, is trying to reach beyond that and explain space to, to people who are not yet part of the community, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It started with... Um, do you know what astronomy on tap is? Have you ever heard of that? Um, I, I don't have a but it sounds interesting if the tap part refers to drinks. Yeah, exactly. It's a, at first, I think it's an American event that was born in New York. And when I started doing science communication, I joined this international team that basically organized events, outreach events in bars to talk about astronomy and uh, astronautics in general. And the aim was really to, instead of bringing this, the, the public to the science, you know, like doing, for instance, open doors in universities. It was more bringing the science to the public directly. So going, for instance, in bars where people who go there are maybe not so much interested about space and uh, have scientists discussing what they're doing around nice beer. This sounds really interesting. And so this has been around in, in various places for a while, you're saying? Yes, I think, I think we have now like 40 different cities around the world who do that. Uh, for sure, with COVID, it has been difficult, but um, yeah, it, it's it's really an amazing event. And if you have the occasion to go, uh, uh, it, it really, I think, one of the things that got me into science communication for real. It's called Astronomy on Tap? 
Yes, exactly. Okay. And do you know, um, so I assume there are locations worldwide and people can look it up on the internet just out of curiosity. So there's other locations in Switzerland too? Yeah, so there is one in Bern. That's the first one I um, I went to and I created the one in Lausanne. Okay. And I think there is a team interested in launching that in Zurich. Very interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see that. I mean, it's, I must admit, I haven't heard of it. And it sounds like a, at first glance, sort of a funny thing. It's sort of you go to the bar and instead of the live band or the karaoke or the football game, it's astronomy, but I love it. Speaking of sort of like audience, um, I guess, audience feedback, it's a nice nice way to transition to that. I mean, have you had any feedback from, from your audience, sort of like comments, um, you know, what they think about the show, what they like, um, any, any interesting suggestions? Mm, so until now, we've been reaching, I think, one to two thousand people per episode, something mm-hmm. like that. So it's it's still small, and um, I have the ambition to make it bigger by developing different formats in the in, during the next year. Because as of now, we have feedback from people from the scientific community who absolutely love it because they get to discover the the people behind the research, and uh, also people from the student community who really like to see their professors, for instance, uh, from another point of view, like. Um, professor who is doing epidemiology who loves to do pizza on Sundays. I mean, that's the kind of things that make our professors more more human and more accessible. And for the general public, I, I, I do have a few feedback, but I think that my format needs to be developed in the coming year because it's, it's still a long format, 15 to 20 minutes. And I'd like to do also shorter ones to to target more the general public. So sort of along the maybe as short as like the TikTok type videos? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not a fan of TikTok videos and having something so short. But uh, I mean, you need to, to find uh, just the right timing, you know, something that is long enough so you can actually explain and bring something valuable, but short enough so that people who are not interested in science will actually watch it. Yeah, I, I guess TikTok is really... Uh, usually too short to kind of communicate any sort of interesting concept but let me let me maybe ask you the other way around then sort of so besides your own show like um what may be some places that you like to go to for you know space news education um that type of thing so you mean like a physical place no well it could be physical places i guess like the astronomy on tap but i mean even like you know other other shows podcasts uh, youtube channels um that kind of thing so you know, I'm mostly on social media and YouTube, so it's a, it's a YouTube channel. And what I like to develop is uh, shorter videos, so more YouTube YouTube style, and uh, so explaining things in maybe like five minutes or so, and or meeting people in their environment. Because until now, the show is, as I say, located in this uh, virtual lunar environment. And uh, actually meeting people in the laboratory or in, in their environment is something that I like to do. And so it could be like an introductory video. And if you want to know more, go take a look at the Galactic Clay Show because you get to meet the person in depth, for instance. Okay, and people can probably just easily find that by searching for Galact- Galactic Chloe on, on YouTube, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so you were sp- you've been speaking about some of your guests, so let's talk a little bit about some basically past and potential future episodes. So how many episodes have you done so far? We've done 12 until now. Okay, and so what have been some of your um, favorite or more in, most interesting or maybe most surprising uh, moments during those episodes? I really, I really love shooting the one with the uh, EPFL president, Martin Vitali. I think because um, it's, a, it's a figure at the university who 
I mean, the, the president of the university seems so inaccessible. And uh, I mean, it's the per- person sending you email to get vaccinated, right? You don't know the person behind right. that. And um, meeting him and talking about not only being a president, but the research he's doing, I felt like I was meeting a totally new person. And it was very interesting to, to talk about how it is to work in a university administration when you're actually passionate about research. And it's the way our universities work, right? It's always professors that get, for instance, the head of a faculty or head of a university. And how they manage to, to do both, it's really interesting. Yeah, I must admit, I probably know quite a few who um, they see the administrative side as a distraction to their research. <laughs> <laughs> which I sympathize with. I mean, it's not a, it's, um, you have to admire the people who actually manage to do both in a, in a good way. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that does sound like an interesting episode. So looking towards the future, um, who, who would be some of your sort of dream guests and, and, and why? Huh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've already, already had so many amazing guests uh, from professors to students to real astronauts, a Nobel Prize, and it's not, it's not really the, uh, the title that makes the great episode. It's really the person behind and if the p- person is willing to share. Um, I, I mean, I would love to have a, a great science communicator coming to my show, someone who is not always, not only interested in doing his research, but sharing to also have his point or his or her point of view on, on that aspect of science that we do not talk about so much. Could you, can you think of examples of such great science communicators that, that you admire? Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson is, of course. <laughs> yeah, sure, that's the, that's the standard <laughs> one, yes. Um, but I, I still uh, got to follow someone from, um, someone who's a bit like my profile. She did her study at MIT and then her name is uh, Space Girl. Uh, she's in the U.S. as well. Oh, is that uh, Emily Calandrelli? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And uh, I mean, I, I think her profile is also amazing, and how she's involved with uh, with kids. And um, yeah, that's someone I would love to interview. <laughs> she has that um, show now with like the science show for kids, right? I think on Netflix. Netflix, yes, exactly. Emily, I think Emily's Wonder Lab. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's like a now that you mentioned it, there's a few sort of interesting personalities. I guess the other one that's sort of very active on social media and um, I think is even supposed to fly now on Virgin Galactic is uh, Kelly Girardi. Mm, true, true. I mean, it's those types of personalities also that uh, the general public is attracted to because they make science uh, intriguing and um, they that's what I admire with them and uh, what I'm still actually learning is really how to get the attention of the public and how to to merge humor with science so it is just attractive to them. Yeah. So I think, so some of the people we talked about, I guess they are, they probably started as communicators and then they sort of moved into real life, um, even going to space, like um, it may happen with Kelly Girardi. Can you think of people who are sort of going the other way? So people who are maybe great scientists or astronauts, and you think they're just really great um, communicators? I mean, leaving aside Neil deGrasse Tyson, we just already talked about. Um, well, in my surroundings, uh, Claude Nicolier, so one, yeah. the only Swiss astronaut, um, is for me a great science communicator because um, 
I mean, one example and the best example for me is I think I've heard his story and uh, him talking about uh, space missions like maybe 60 or 70 times now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time I hear it, I'm always that inspired. And I'm always, it's, it's like the first time I'm hearing the story. And that's for me one of the best things to have as a science communicator. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sure you follow uh, the other one I think is great as an astronaut right now is the French one, uh, Thomas Pesquet. Of course. I think he's doing a great job. I mean, he seems to really have fascinated a lot of people, not only in France, but also like around Europe, sort of get them excited about uh, what they're doing in International Space Station and, and at ESA. But by the way, did you, um, we, we just, um, our international uh, listeners outside of Europe may not be aware, but basically we just had an astronaut selection application in, in Europe for ESA. Did, did you apply for that? No, unfortunately, I'm too young. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I'm still a master's student, so um, you know you need to to have a, a master's degree and then at least three years of uh, experience. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have that. But I worked uh, with ESA and actually did an episode for promotion of this selection in mm-hmm. Switzerland and uh, to attract more women and um, well, more diversity in this uh, in this selection. Yeah, I think that worked out right because if I remember the statistics, they got quite a few female applicants this time. Yeah, they do. They do. And um, and even if you, if you take a look at the Parastronauts uh, Feasibility Project, mm-hmm. so now we know they're selected also people with uh, handicaps. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, yeah, they get, have a few hundred applicants on, on that too. Okay. Anything else interesting you learned about the, the astronaut application process when you, when you researched that and did the episode with ESA? Um, I think ESA did a, a tremendous job on this selection. Because, uh, so, you know, I think uh, last one we had about 8,000 applicants and now we're 22,000 mm. applicants. It's, uh, it's huge. And um, so many people have heard about it. And uh, actually many people that I know have tried it and they were not so so much interested in space at the beginning. And um, yeah, I think what's, what I loved and what I learned about this selection is really how they try to to be as inclusive as possible. It was really inclusiveness was one of the key words for this year. Yeah, and again, if I, I mean, I only briefly glanced at the statistics, but it really seemed like it was, I mean, not only sort of like the male versus female mix being probably much better than historically, but it seemed like just really from from many, many, like all of the European countries that could apply, basically applied, um, which is great. And then you said the, the, the handicap program, um, that's, that's of course a very interesting um, new element as well. Okay, so you couldn't apply this time. I mean, you know, this won't be the last ASA selection. So hopefully next time they open it up, um, you'll be able to apply. But yeah, I mean, I should ask you, do you, do you even want to go to space? Of course, of course. Uh, that's, uh, that's a dream. Uh, well, since I discovered space, since I was 15, I think again, and I'm what I do every day and what, what I've been doing, actually, um, all the projects, uh, the science communication, it it's with the dream of one day being able to go there. So really, really this dream of one day being an astronaut has brought me so many things and so many experiences. It's, um, the dream is not going there, but it's really the way that brings you there. And that's why I, I think it's just one of the most wonderful dreams you can have. And so in, so, so in what you mentioned the way, in what way would you like to go there and what, what would you like to do there? Because I guess, you know, um, it, it is relatively speaking as easy as 
as never before to go to space, right? Because now we have the Virgin Galactic flights and the Blue Origin flights. There is, um, you know, um, on Virgin Galactic, there's basically a raffle for some seats that people can participate in. Uh, we have um, the Inspiration 4 mission on the Gru Dragon, which is basically um, also a non-professional flight launching in, mm-hmm. in a week. Wow, this is very soon. I assume you're, you're probably, you probably don't mean going on a tourist flight. <laughs> so in, what, in which way would you like to go to space? No, for sure. I, I'd love to be an astronaut uh, in a sense, like contributing to science and uh, humanity in space. So, um, of course, that's one of the hardest ways, right? As you mentioned now, <laughs> only if you can do that. But uh, if I could get to be selected by ESA, that would be the dream. But again, and you never know, it's true that, uh, as you say, with this uh, private space emerging, uh, we will need more commercial astronauts. So I, I, if I gave the opportunity, I'll probably apply to both. But the dream would be to go there as part of the European Space Agency. Is there any type of um, you know, specific research you're interested in or any specific thing you would like to do up, up in space? Hmm. Well, going to the moon would be... <laughs> would be amazing oh you want to go to the moon okay yeah, so right. that's next level I, I, was, I was talking about the suborbital flights and then we we're talking about a little, little bit orbital but uh-huh. the moon okay that's well, moon, the moon is the next step now right i mean uh, the iss will be operating for maybe four to eight years with the esa nasa and the other space agencies and uh, then it's likely to go private so if you want to follow the space agency's ambitions, you need to go further. <laughs> I, I guess that's fair. And that's probably for the foreseeable future, like um, for tourism, that's going to be out of reach as well. Well, unless you're like the Japanese billionaire and you really pay a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> um, okay, so you stop you stop at the moon or would you, would you go all the way to Mars? And to be honest, I'm part of the people who think that I will not be seeing men on Mars, men or women on Mars. I think it's um, the next challenge is the moon and we still have lots of things to figure out to go there and to stay there. And I think Mars uh, still still not um, too far away until now was too many challenges that we haven't figured out. And uh, I'm I'm 100% sure that we will, but um, I don't think I will be able to see it. (laughs) In your lifetime, you mean? In my lifetime, yes, of course. Oh wow! I, I really, I mean, obviously, I really, I really think you. I really hope you're wrong on that one. <laughs> well, I, I'm asking to be wrong. I would love to see it. Uh, it's just you know when you when you you think about the resources that um, that it amounts to go to the moon, right? Well, the Apollo program and and uh, the space race and really the political will to go there, and uh, what we're trying to do now with the, this international collaboration. That's already huge. Going to Mars, it's not the same trip, uh, not the same environment. And uh, when you actually think about it, only two space agencies have actually landed a rover on Mars. So if we cannot land rovers properly with a a good probability, it's unlikely that we'll be sending men in the near future. Okay, all right, let's unpack that. There's at least a couple of topics to talk about there. I guess (laughs) the first thing I would say it's, I mean, maybe a little bit optimistically and speaking as a shareholder, it seems the most likely shot we have to get humans to Mars right now is not governments, but a mm-hmm. private company. For sure. For sure. And uh, we can we can see it. We can see the will for its SpaceX with their Starship who actually wants to aim for Mars. Yes. And so did that, I mean, of course, one of the good things is that it's not, well, it's not directly dependent on political will, as you mentioned. I guess it is indirectly dependent in that the company is still making a lot of revenue from government contracts, and that is very important. But 
Let's talk about the political will for a moment as well, because, um, and so political will, what I mean by this, and probably you as well, is sort of like general support um, by governments, but then, you know, unless you are in a um, author authoritarian country, then the support the governments give will be somewhere at the, in the end driven by the support that the population at large sort of gives towards space, right? Because the, the politicians typically want to do something that's um, that they perceive too much against the, the the will of the population. So we have this, I guess, ever since space exploration was around, beginning of the days of Apollo, there was um, you know always people who have protested against space being, um, like you said before, it takes a lot of resources, and that those resources may be able to be used in in different ways on Earth. And I'm sure you also followed recently when we had. Um, the sort of the back-to-back -back flights, the suborbital flights by, by Richard Branson on Spaceship Two and then um, Jeff Bezos on New Shepard. To, to some extent, I think it's fair to say there was quite a lot of backlash in, in the media. There were some relatively harsh articles being written. Sort mm -hmm. of. Um, as, a, as a space communicator, um, and I can give you my view in a second as well, but how did you perceive that um, when, when you read some of those articles? What what were some of your thoughts? Well, actually, I, I kind of even talked with people because to tell you a bit of a, the story, I was interviewed by the Swiss radio um, right after those two flights and uh, talking about the access to space or is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? And uh, after this interview, I received a few uh, angry emails <laughs> talking about my, wow. well, my point of view and the fact that they were really, really worried about the future of uh, space exploration. So if I, if I can give you my, my point of view so we can maybe debate on that is that uh, for me, I basically said it's a good thing. It's a good thing because privatization of space had to happen. It's uh, as we, we can see with the airplanes, etc. It had to happen, and it's good because it's getting access to people who want to go to space but cannot become astronauts, for instance. And it also brings lots and lots of money in the sector, developing new startups, developing a new economy. However, the one thing that we are missing. Our regulations, because it's true that uh, we cannot be sending rockets and rockets to space without taking into account the environmental impact, and uh, not only on Earth, but also the debris that we have around Earth. And those regulations we need to create now, and that's the thing that will make um, those touristic flights, I think, uh, a good thing in the future. Yeah, I mean, for, for what it's worth, I. I probably obviously agree with you. I think it's um, it's a good thing. Like you said, it brings a lot of additional resources to the space sector. It also kind of gathers a lot of attention onto the space sector so that, you know, people who are not yet part of the community um, get more curious about it. The whole thing of like, you know, billionaires flying, I mean, it's, it's, it's very common for new technologies to start being used by rich people, right? Whether that's jet planes or, or cell phones or, or computers or whatever. And... Um, the, the the last point you brought up is an interesting one. The um, uh, let's call it the carbon footprint of of the chemical rockets we're using right now. So this is something I don't know what your experience was, but let's say even two, definitely two years ago, but maybe even as recent as one year ago, I hardly ever I think heard about anybody anybody commenting on that. And now it seems like well, if not every week, then every two weeks, I'm at some you know conference or event or online event, and somebody brings up the question, but what about the carbon footprint? of the rockets and um but kind of taking those two together i mean don't you feel like 
this this is these are examples that that we just need more education on space and um, just to make sure also that the general population doesn't fall into sort of easy criticism or easier stereotypes. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, I think especially on this topic of the you know the link of, between space and sustainability, because the general public really sees space as an like one of the most unsustainable uh, industry. <laughs> And when you actually compare it to other industries, like yeah, the chemical one on, on Earth, it's uh, it's nothing. But also the research that we do in space can actually contribute to uh, lots of sustainable aspects on Earth. So that's a thing that I I like to to um, to bring up a lot when I do science communication. But it's it's I agree with you. It's a topic that has arisen maybe a couple of years ago. We weren't so much talking about it before. Yeah. And now it seems like it's it's really increasingly important. And I mean, and, and it's a fair question that should be addressed. I just want to make sure we we really, as a science communicator, as a space communicator community, that we really do address it. Um, so people have the right information to um, basically work off. And like you said, there's important things to mention, like, you know, for example, talk about the climate, like, well, the reason we can observe the climate is because we have satellites in space. Okay. No, it, exactly. And it's uh, even all the technologies that we use every day, most of them, almost a lot of them come from uh, space exploration research that uh, we did during the Apollo program, the Shuttle program of the ISS. And um, that's a thing that the, the general public doesn't know. And that's actually a great website uh, if you haven't seen it. I think it's called NASA Home. Um, it's a website where you go, you get to go around your house and uh, see the objects that were developed for space exploration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's it's really a very large array of, of objects. I mean, uh, people won't even be aware, but things like the computer mouse and many, really many, many other things. It's interesting. I forget now who told me this, but somebody had this idea of like, we should just take all of these objects and put like a sticker on them that says NASA inside. <laughs> so just it would be on people's mind how much stuff is actually coming from in, directly and indirectly from uh, from space research. But I mean, this is touching basically on a topic that we've sort of implicitly touched upon a few times uh, already now, which is sort of how to really make sure that we communicate space to a like a really broad audience and not these like limited existing space community because while they're all great people and we love them it's it's a very small community and we really need to take the space message to the very broad community is there anything else that you think we can do that we should be doing to make sure that you know space is communicated to to a really broad audience well i think that's one of the things that um as, as you mentioned, the, the touristic flights and the fact that uh, we have large uh, companies like Origin or SpaceX, uh, they do get a lot of media attention. So we space is becoming more and more present even in the news and uh, people get more easily um, attracted to this field and wanting to know more. Um, to really target a, a broad audience, I still think that the the, the, the the key word would be really bring the science to the people because we, we need to find innovative ways to put the science where people don't expect it. I have another example, for instance, um, I did an internship at uh, Swiss Next San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went there, I developed the concept of using an escape room. I don't know if you know that what this is. Yes, I, I, I have done those, yeah. Okay, you've, you've done those. And... Uh, for instance, using escape rooms becoming more and more, uh, yeah, famous. I guess in uh, in Europe and uh, in the US, uh, those are thrilling games where you get to an hour to escape. 
and using this and putting science communication in those rooms. Um, so for instance, you put actually prototypes of research in it. You design a scenario that uh, is based on things that have actually happened. And this way people can actually learn about space exploration without even knowing it. This is something that I'd, um, I I got this idea when I was doing escape games with my family. And uh, I'm, I'm like the one interested in space, so they're not so interested. And uh, we actually did a couple of those on the, the space topic. Mm-hmm. And every time I was doing it, I was like, that's so unrealistic. <laughs> that would never happen. And um, we were discussing about the game afterwards and my family was like, oh, you saw that? That's so cool. That's how it go- It happens in space. And um, I was telling them no. And um, maybe there's something to do. Maybe we could develop tools like this so that people can have fun and learn about science in the same way. That's a really fun example. And, and just for in case some of the audience are not aware, so escape rooms, just a really quick explanation, is basically some sort of pretend setup where... You're in a room, as the name implies, uh, you may start um, out being handcuffed or tied to a chair or something, and then the door to the next room is locked, and basically you have to, again, as the name implies, escape, and all of the tools and clues and information you need is somewhere hidden in the room, but uh, it, it takes a certain effort to basically get out. But, but Chloe, I think um, I saw like one or two years ago, there was even some group in France or some company or some some people who were proposing to do a ISS, International Space Station, escape room. Have you? Do you see that? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I know there was a, a group of students who did uh, like a do-it-yourself escape room on that uh, subject. And uh, I did it. That was great. That was really great. But um, I think that uh, what, what we did with Space Such a Service, it's actually going out uh, in two weeks or so, is we created a an application on um, using um, augmented reality. So you can play it at home uh, with augmented reality. It's the same topic, you know, escape room, but you're using your phone to see the room. Okay. Interesting. And um, you you mentioned that uh, you were annoyed that some, many times the the rooms were not sort of, um, the space thematic was not done in a realistic way. It brings me to one of my favorite topics and the one we usually sort of close up on, which is um, the science fiction. Do you also follow science fiction? And if yes, what are some of your your favorites? Um, So you mean like movies or TV shows? Movies or books or TV series, um, even video games. I mean, really anything. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Well, science fiction now in movies is, is pretty much everywhere. Um, what is my one of my favorite? Well, Interstellar is one of uh, my favorite space movies. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of TV shows, what did I watch? Uh, I think I watched Salvation on Netflix. Mm-hmm. That's the one with the the asteroid. The, the yeah, exactly. Asteroid. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, and um, well, I mean, it's it's really enjoyable to watch uh, science fiction, but for me, it's not the same. Um, it's, an, it's not the same purpose. It's meant to um, to interest the public, but it's not meant to to be scientifically correct. If we if we actually did a movie that would be scientifically realistic, uh, it would be uh, maybe a bit boring. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned Interstellar, right? Because if I can, off the top of my head, think of most science fiction movies, that's probably that's got to be one of the ones that is most correct. 
<laughs> because they really, for example, delve into, they really try to be correct about the effects of, um, of relativity and time dilation. Um, they even got uh, Kip Thorne, the, uh, the Stanford um, astrophysicist involved um, to design the black hole correctly and all of that. But I think I think you're probably right. If um, people try to be too realistic, then um, it, it may become boring or uh, complicated for, for for the audience. But it's um, true, yeah. This movie, especially, sorry, just to interrupt you. This movie, especially, I know was uh, difficult to understand for a general public. Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, this, it's the same with with books, right? I mean, we have to we make this distinction between sort of like soft or normal science fiction, and then there's like you know what we generally call hard science fiction. The hard science fiction is where supposedly the author you know gets most of the um, uh, well, let's let's say the physics, so to say, um, correct. And of course, the more you do that, um, it, it can be, become quite hard. I remember there's one, which I still haven't read, it's called Tau Zero by an author called Paulson. That's supposed to be the hardest science fiction there is. And if you go on Amazon, people actually complain that it's too difficult to understand. <laughs> I, I think there's, you, you watched the movie The Martian, right? Yes, yes. I think it's it's not hundred percent realistic, but uh, the author of the um, of the book has has worked with NASA engineers to actually write it. To be oh no no! So the the scientific advisor to that was uh, was Dr. Jim Green, the chief scientist um, at NASA, who was actually on one of the previous episodes. Guys, oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> and um, and so and and still, so that people are complaining about the Martian too, because then of course it's not a hundred percent. But then I think it's basically what you're saying: people are trying to strike a balance between you know getting some of the science right, but also not making it too onerous to 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 watch. Um, Chloe, I forgot to got to mention you actually recently also got chosen by the International um, Astronautic Federation as an emerging space leader. So first of all, congratulations. And second, what, what does that mean? Thank you, Raphael. So this is a program uh, by the uh, International Astronautical Federation, as you said, um, to attend the, uh, the IAC in Dubai uh, in October. And so I applied to this program um, as, a, as a young emerging space leader because you need to be between 21 and 35. And to contribute to space exploration uh, in your field, in your country, or at an international scale. And um, we were 25 chosen, and uh, we will all be coming uh, to um, to Dubai in October to present our work uh, at the IAC. Fantastic. As, as will I. So I shall see you there at the IAC, the, the, the big conference, and I hope there's going to be a Yuri's Night as well. Uh, Yuri's Night, uh, probably most listeners know, this is a sort of very famous um, space-themed party that's taking place every year on the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's flight, but they typically also do it um, um, on one of the evenings of the of the IAC conference. Great. Chloe, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Um, again, I hope to see you in, uh, in Dubai and, and all the best for you and for the Galactic Chloe Show. Thank you very much, Rafael, and uh, well, congratulations for everything that you do as well in this podcast. It's uh, how we can get the word out there and uh, get people interested in space. Thanks, Chloe. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, 
Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.